Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There are there have been moments in my life where this was my favorite band. Like Ben can tell you, I showed up to college with a hand-painted banner that was eight feet by two feet that I hung across the ceiling of my room that was an imitation of this uh, band's logo oh, sorry. from the most eight, recent record. How, how, how long? The measurements? Eight, feet, eight, eight by two. It was like a huge banner. I was like, I'm going to need something to hang in my dorm room. So I ripped okay. up sheet and then with black paint, I painted the logo of this band and hung it. Uh, and uh, my two squeezed Dirty Dancing soundtrack loving roommates didn't know what to make of me. But And uh, also <laughs> Jeff was huge with the ladies. You can imagine they loved it. They were like, tell me more about that banner. 50 years of music with 50 year old white guys. fine Wednesday evening. We're ready, man. We're going to do it. Yeah, good. I'm good. Dramatic delay. Good I tell you, you I need, I'm just trying to be polite. I'm just trying I to be need, polite. Uh, I need this, like you read about. This is great. Uh, busy, busy week. Are you guys uh, feeling the crunch of school? Oh, for God's sake. Yeah, I've been <laughs> in meetings all day, yesterday and today. If it weren't the two of you, I, I mean, that you're the only two humans on earth for whom I would Zoom right now, for sure. So. <laughs> well, and I, dude, I'm, I'm teaching my first class tomorrow, half yeah. in person. Nice. Wow. Now, which half are you going to send? We get the, it's alphabetical. The first Come half on. shows up, and then the second These half the watches jokes. on Zoom, and then vice versa. I know. I got yeah. you joked. I mean, it was good. He's, sending the, he's sending the funny, clever <laughs> self, and then the like... <laughs> The self that's insecure and oh, I didn't get that joke at all, at dude. I'm too much. Yeah. I'm too much into it, really. You're but yeah, no, I'm gonna send the mean half. Believe me, it's a law class, so I'm gonna <laughs> yeah, be like, really after. Him. Tell us about the box. <laughs> they got a box you have to stay in, so the cameras can stay with you. Is that right? No, it's not the cameras. They taped out a box where I can be six feet away from the people who are sitting there, oh, and nice. it's a pretty small box. I've described it as the jewel right. cage. So I'm gonna like <laughs> yes. run along the edge of the box, and that's I just exactly. can't get out of it. It's exactly what we've got going on, yeah. Are you going to have, like, Gallagher warnings? Like, if you're in the first row, you might get COVID. <laughs> like, like, they, they can hold up plastic sheeting. Oh, uh, dude, that's Gallagher's yeah. humor, and I will not uh, be involved. Yeah. Well, we get uh, to go outside a lot. We're going to have a lot of outdoor classes, and that's perfect uh, when you're teaching literature. So I'm kind of excited uh, to get outside. All tree-based well, literature, the Giving Tree, <laughs> Walden, the Lorax. You should have we'll, the Lorax and have somebody jump out of a tree and just scare the shit out of them like on the first day. Oh, so and do the Overstory. There's a new oh. book about trees called The Overstory, too. So, yeah. It's actually, okay. yeah, it's not bad. We've got a lovely woods on campus. So, Bridge to Terabithia is, uh, is up there. For What's the book well? where the kid pushes the other kid out of the, out of the tree? A separate never, piece. Oh, that that's a boarding book, school classic right that there. That is a horrible book. That book. <laughs> I'm still twice a month. I have a nightmare about that book. <laughs> we made, uh, <laughs> we made Martha read that this summer. So oh, she's caught did? up in all her classic boarding Why school Why would literature. you make her read that? It's like, 
what was the other book about the kid who had to eat his own his only pet pig to live like a day no uh, pigs would die a day no pigs would die that oh, I a piece, like that scarred that just ruined my childhood those two books like <laughs> life has no meaning nihilism oh uh yeah okay. i remember when i used to teach sixth grade we taught a day no pigs would die the did rabbit you that? Oh, did you read that ben no oh off air, I will. I will give you the yeah. summary of a lot that. of a lot of pigs die. Ben, prepare yes. yourself. Oh, dude, listen, <laughs> I love some bacon. That that would be fine. So, <laughs> all right. Well, welcome to the Music City Drive-In Podcast Network. This is fifty years of music with fifty-year-old white guys. Sorry for so much banter, uh, but boy, we got a lot of stuff to process these days. School is back in session, and, and the three of us are actually not professional podcasters. Is that correct? Oh, that's for Dude, sure. we, we've been doing this for three months. Now we're professional. It is, all right. We're at, least, uh, we're at least high amateur. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I just, checked act- a, I just checked a poll. It's, we're neck and neck with these guys. So, yeah, there's a, uh, a poll out on Twitter. It's a bracket, at uh, Bracketeers on Twitter, and they are looking at the, the best new podcasts. And we're going up against Mystery Brews. Best of luck to them. Uh, but right now it's fifty-two forty-eight. Jeff, is that about it? It is still. We are we are the slimmest of leads here like, over Mysterious Brews. Oh man! So if you see any voting, uh, go with go with fifty-year-old white guys. Is that <laughs> correct? Fair to say. <laughs> That seems to be how the nation has governed itself up to this point. Why <laughs> no, I think it's 70-year-old white guys. <laughs> I, I cannot wait. I can't believe we're like we're on the we're actually recording ourselves saying vote for 50-year-old white guys. It's like the least progressive <laughs> thing I've ever said. <laughs> All right. Well, we've got to jump right into things. It's 1985. I'm very excited for this week. Uh, uh when I was 15 years old, I had my first kiss. Uh that's really when memory started forming uh, for me as a teenager. <laughs> so the music is going to come alive uh, for me during this, this particular podcast. We start with the Grammy winner. It's the Grammy winner. We are the world by various artists. It's a, uh, it's a classic. there can't we <laughs> there comes a time to there stop that time. song so, so fade so out god um, how many times did you watch that video i guess you neither of you had yeah 100 you neither of you had mtv but it was on the hour every hour for the all the time higher year especially leading up to live aid i mean they must have played it 30 times a day it was so ben bad. did you still not have cable in 85 no, man, I, like, I didn't get cable until my parents moved to Manhattan. I'm not kidding. Like, there was no cable. Yeah. All right. Well, this, was, this video was a very big deal. Um, all the stars were there, except our man Prince. Jeff, where was Prince? Prince, it, it depends on who you ask, but he showed up. They didn't have a big enough part. Did he leave because he was bent out of shape? Did he leave because of bad communication? I think it's very possible that Prince left because he heard the track and was like, this song sucks. And I, 20 years from now, we're all going to be embarrassed by it. He gave them a song for the album. He gave them an outtake. Right. He was in the album. So I, I remember at the time Prince was slandered as this selfish prima donna, but that no one looks good in that video. Like everyone's at their worst, like Dylan's at his most nasal Springsteen's like, wearing the bandana and the leather jacket and doing like the worst Bruce Springsteen impression. Like, like well, Michael, Jackson, this is the case? Michael Jackson is so shiny in his outfit. That you can't actually <laughs> look directly at the camera. Like it's a, it's a train wreck all the right, way Before through. the song, I thought my impression was they wanted to make sure when you heard it, they were like, Oh, that's Bob Dylan. Right. Oh, that's Bruce Springsteen. So they did like the a plus plus version of themselves. Like, <laughs> yes. 
right. like, just like it's definitely them. Yeah, even as Huey if Lewis would tell. Huey Lewis oversings his two lines, and Cindy Lauper comes Cindy in all Lopper. crazy. Oh, like, dude, Cindy Lauper yeah. brings it. Wow, 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 wow! I mean, it's just it's. I used to be able to do the whole song like every impression. Um, I can't even come close now. But that, yeah, woof. Well, you know, no, dude, and at the time you couldn't possibly make fun of it. Like you couldn't be oh like, God, no. you know that no. that benefit for the starving people? It sucks. It sucks. <laughs> yeah. It's no. embarrassing. You had to buy it. You had to listen to it. You had to watch it. Otherwise, what kind of person are oh, you? Oh, dude, I'm sure we'll cover it. But I mean, Live Aid was huge. Yeah. Huge. I watched every minute of Live Aid. Yeah, I well, got up at 7 a.m. to watch Status Quo. I had it on the little VHS, too. My brother and I went back and rewatched yep. it. So yep. we... Before we get there, we talked about Band-Aid last week, and we had to cut it because it ran too long. So Bob Geldof assembles an all-star cast of British musicians and cranks out in like a week that one of the best-selling singles of all time in, in England's history. So then it's, it's um, Harry Belafonte who wants to get something going in America – he turns to Quincy Jones. Quincy Jones turns to Michael Jackson. And Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson are responsible for writing that particular song. Yep. Who and it sounds like they wrote it in about five minutes. I mean, not their best work. Uh, I mean, I'm according to what I read, it was actually a, a couple weeks. And LaToya says Michael wrote 90% of the song. So... We're going to go with LaToya. She's an unbiased witness for sure. <laughs> yeah, I trust sure. LaToya just implicitly. <laughs> um, oh, my God. So uh, we should also note, as, as we talk about this winning the Grammy for Song of the Year, it also, also had uh, a long stint at number one. So it shares the title with the number one hit this week. Um, all right. Live Aid. A... Oh, yeah. sorry. I'm sorry, I just think it's classic America, right? Like, England has a good idea, does a song that has some artistic merit, and then America's like, you know what we could do? We could do that bigger and shinier and worse and louder. Let's do it longer and louder and then uh, ban bandwagon ourselves on band Band-Aid and get, get our fingerprints all over this thing. You're talking about uh, transcendentalism, right? This is Emerson taking <laughs> romanticism. I just like, you know, like you take, I mean, the thing is though, without America's money and without the size of America's audience, you don't do as much good with Live Aid, but it's kind of classic America here, right? Like this, I think of this as the hands across America, you know, US oh, moment. I forgot like, let's about just hands do across Everything America. bigger and dumber than we've ever done it before. And eventually, it caught up with us but like the 80s were america at its most neon plugged in it's like the mcrib decade like how can we make it bigger and weirder than it already is so just just to piggyback on your point rambo 2 and rocky 4 both come out in 1985 which speaks to exactly what you're saying sylvester stallone's like oh you know what i'm gonna take this small little thing that i did that was kind of had artistic merit and i'm just gonna celebrate america through these movies all right is well or the one with drago is rocky for the I'm oh yeah totally okay. oh, and james brown that's right <laughs> living that's with a awesome. hernia <laughs> what did you guys think of like at the moment in the on the day of i thought live aid was just fantastic I oh, I still it. like it. I got a sauce. Yeah. I don't like uh, the song, but I mean, that, that, the concert's great. Yeah. I mean, it's weird to watch acts try to like do their whole careers in 20 minutes. Like now looking mm. back at it right. historically, I'm fascinated by what some of those acts chose to play given and, like and, a tiny little set, you know? And for our younger audience, so Bob Geldof, who puts Band-Aid together, puts together uh four concerts on the same day called live aid uh ben can you name a city where a concert was performed oh for, are we gonna go back and forth yeah uh london london jeff uh and the other one the other big one is philadelphia great ben i didn't even know there were more than that la maybe no, no two Sydney, more australia is one of yep. them that's correct. 
and and oh and uh, Moscow. yeah, Moscow. Yep. So but Moscow doesn't concerts. count, right? Like they weren't what? they weren't part of the broadcast, and it was like Gorky Park. It was bands you never heard of, right? <laughs> and and the Australia yeah. thing was a ripoff yeah. too. Like poor NXS like got on TV for like fifteen seconds dancing around, but like that. It was definitely well, London, Philadelphia, Tennessee. Yeah, those are the ones I remember. All right. So who won the day? Which band or artist won the day? I have a clear number one. I'm curious to hear if Jeff agrees. You too. Well, the Queen movie suggests that it's Queen doing Radio Gaga. Which Please. I, are you freaking kidding me? But I think it was when U2 um, plays bad and Bono goes into the crowd and pulls that audience member out and slow dances with her. Oh, I dude, I had U2 by a country mile. They <laughs> killed yeah, it. I think so too. I, so, all right, I have no... I was worried Jeff was going to choose the Style Council, which I remember <laughs> as an American, I taped the whole thing, including the London stuff, and I was like, who uh, the hell is this? Like, why am I watching this? That's uh, Paul Weller. Come I know, but I was completely puzzled by it. That's awesome. No, I thought you two owned the day, and it wasn't even close. They played well, and that bad was like 13 minutes oh, long. Oh, dude. Yeah. And he disappears into the audience, and the cameras don't know what to do. And he comes down that he and that woman had that crazy intimate moment in front of six, like two billion people. I, yeah. I, it's still moving. Like, I, I think I yeah. might have watched it a year ago. And I and I was like, that is just a beautiful little event. All right. I got to check this out. Let's move on to uh, some big things that happened in 1985. I'm going to name five debuts. And you tell me which debut had the biggest impact when you were 15. And uh, which of these five things do you think actually won in the long run? All right, you ready? Let's Here's hear what it. we got. Boris Becker at 17 wins Wimbledon. Mikhail Gorbachev becomes the president of the USSR. Michael Jordan wins Rookie of the Year. The Unabomber kills his first person. And New Coke appears on the scene go ahead uh, i remember new coke really well and so i'll put that down as 15 year old me we did the whole thing where we got the taste test and i actually yeah. wrote a letter to the coca-cola corporation back classic coke like, <laughs> i brought the whole nine yards on it you're the best <laughs> i love that you demanded where is I'm my coach? Very disappointed, and I wanted to just let them know in writing how mad I was. And you know, sent I, it off to Atlanta. <laughs> I great. actually was not a big Coke fan until they brought classic Coke back, and that's when I fell in love with it. So I, it worked. Huh. If that whole thing was a red herring to get people to oh, it's the greatest class. red herring of all time. Yeah, it worked on me. Yeah. Like I, sure. I definitely started drinking classic Coke only when it was called that. I had, I had could oh, take that's a fascinating. bit till then, but um, I really, I watched Boris Becker. I fell for that hard. It, the idea that a kid basically my age could win Wimbledon. It's um, crazy. I didn't know anything about the Unabomber. Uh, and Jordan is a rookie. Like the NBA wasn't on TV yet, really, a lot. Like I read about him going for 63 against the Celtics in the playoffs, but that game wasn't broadcast nationally outside oh. the. Oh man, know, we saw it. That was two. a nightmare. It's like, oh my God, stop this. Yeah, guy. no, dude. That was definitely <laughs> one insane. where that, if you're going to choose what came to mean things more to me, that was brutal. I mean, yeah. the Jordan era, I was a Knicks uh, fan. It didn't work out for me at all. Oh, God. So, and I, I remember that. I, I watched that game. That game yeah. was really off the hook crazy. And I was yeah. like, oh, look at this. Maybe like uh, George Gervin. Like, nothing to worry about here. Nothing to see. <laughs> really. uh, um, but yeah, sure. I mean, I went and saw Jordan play a bunch when we were in college because you could get tickets, good tickets day of. for Oh, for Philly? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So I watched Barkley Sixers play Jordan's Bulls a bunch of times in person. So that that mattered to me later. Okay. And I can't even remember. What was your other one? What was your other of the five? Um, New Coke, the Unabomber, MJ, Boris Becker, and Gorbachev. Oh, Gorbachev. I mean, at that point, the Soviet Union was still like, you know, was just a big nuclear bomb drawing in my head. Like, I didn't have yeah. any any sophisticated understanding of what was going on there. 
Well, now, now all I think of is Naked Gun when Leslie Nielsen like rubs his head with a <laughs> handkerchief. I oh, totally. I make I make that Gorbachev <laughs> face joke. Mo- I mean, way too often. I'm a huge asshole about it when I see. Uh, oh, yeah, I'm with you. All right, that. there there was another debut in 1985, and this one really had an impact on me. It ends in 1995. What was it for you? Debuts in 85, ends in 95. Was it the sitcom Growing Pains? <laughs> I can't imagine. <laughs> no, it's Van Morrison's third middle period. That was a big time for Tim. <laughs> oh, boy. That's, uh, that's not going to help me with my choice tonight. First off. LA Law? Um, is it LA Law? It is the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes oh, by Bill Watterson. Oh, that's a banger. Great call. Yeah, yeah. that's a great call. Yeah. I apologize I mean, for all my snarky comments. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, you look forward to the newspaper every day with Calvin and Hobbes? Totally. Oh, uh, we're both. You guys- I mean, I'm a fanatic. I got the complete Calvin and Hobbes in Will's room that he got because I made him read it. I mean, right. love the guy. Do you guys have uh, a daily newspaper subscription? Yes. I do, yeah. Nocturne News Sentinel, totally. San Francisco Chronicle. And, right, and the New York honest. Times, actually. It's not 100% fair here because my wife is literally in the paper every day. So. <laughs> right, so you kind of have to monitor that. Uh, let's go to our number one hit for 1985. Any predictions, Ben Barton? I mean, I, I would have guessed we are the world, so I'm already out. You okay, got this, though. You'll know, it, you'll know it after like 0.2 seconds. It's the number one hit. Like a Virgin by Madonna. the biggest at number one but i would have thought material girl me too like that's the one that has stayed like both of my daughters love material girl and they like if i play like a virgin for them they'd be like uh you know no it was because she did like a virgin at the mtv video music awards she didn't have cable it was the most salacious oh dude sexy thing i've ever seen that dribbled down and the video was like off the hook yeah Oh yeah, well, she's she's in Venice on the gondola. Oh, dude. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's funny like I I don't have a whole lot of like puberty moments like where it's like, like oh, that's <laughs> this is a fast forward gear shifting moment, but uh Madonna in 1985 was one of those like I was like, "Oh, oh, no." Oh. Yeah. Oh, dude, I had like seven of those for Madonna. That just yeah. kept going. <laughs> Well, yeah, the bowl of milk and the express yourself. Oh, I was going to mention that exact thing. (laughs) Oh, dude, that hurt my feelings. Ah! I was like, whoa, slow it down. (laughs) Oh, man. If you thought Prince made a young Catholic boy feel like weird and ashamed and oh, Madonna was just like. Hey now. I would assume that, that that song was written about this first date of yours in 1985. <laughs> <laughs> there'll, be, there'll be no more commenting on that. Isn't it All interesting right. how much, one more thing, isn't it interesting how terrible her voice is in 1985? She doesn't even know how to sing yet. It's all She doesn't know how to sing. No. Nope. By, by 89, she's got this big soulful growl. Like She really worked hard at becoming a much better singer. I appreciate that about her. Because this well, record's it all Nile Rodgers, and she's behind him. But by by the Like a Prayer record, she's she's like in the front. Oh, of I'm the sorry. Song. Is Nile Rodgers a producer? In fact, he is. Hey, now transition, like huh? That. Let's go. Impossible question. Here's here's what I have charged the two of you with. 
you're going to come up with your top three producers. And, and the parameters I gave you is that that doesn't mean the, the ones who have created the most hits, right? Because that would be Shania Twain's ex-husband. What's his name, Ben? Oh, um, Mott Lang. Yeah, that guy is a crazy hit. It would machine. actually be George Martin, which I think Jeff might choose. I might. Okay. So, I'm going to let Ben go first. Oh, you're going to let I, me go first? That's awesome, because I have one that's definitely on your list, and I really badly wanted it. So Yeah, bad. yeah, yeah. Go. Okay, okay. So Josh can tell looking... me, what's the number one choice for our generation? What's the obvious guy? Rick Rubin. Yes, Rick Rubin by a mile, by a mile. All right, yep. so I'm going to do Run DMC with my choice this year. He produced one Run DMC record. He produced a whole bunch of crazy metal records, including, including all of the good Slayer records, insofar as you like Slayer. <laughs> he produced the first Beastie Boys record. He produced yep. Johnny Cash, all of those late Johnny Cash songs, including Hurt, which has got to be one yeah. of the greatest productions of all time. Yep. He's like the entire span of his career. He did uh, one of the Adele records. So, I mean, he, that's a massive gargantuan hit. He did a Rage Against the Machine record. He was the producer on Baby Got Back. He did a, one of the best Brandy Carlisle records. He did the best cult record. He did Jay-Z's 99 Problems. He did wow. Life of Pablo and Yeezus, which are basically kind of how you are, depending on how you are, the two best Kanye West records. He did Wildflowers by Tom Petty. He did Petty. Wildflowers, which wow. is a one. And then he also, like, he's done 100 records, so he's got some howling dogs. Like, yeah. he's got a Kid Rock record. He's got more than one Limp Biscuit record. <laughs> oh, he did dear. Linkin Park. He did Slipknot. Oh, dear. Uh, oh, so the on. guy worked the entire uh, waterfront. But uh, basically, the best thing about him, and this will be a theme of all of the people that I choose, is... He, like Wildflowers, Jeff will agree. This is the perfect example of it. All right, so Petty's record before that is that clown from ELO, and he puts a bunch of keyboards on it, and it's <laughs> Petty's biggest hit, and it's a disaster. That record sounds terrible. The songs are great, and the record sounds terrible. For Wildflowers, he says to Petty, listen, all acoustic, live strings, that's it. And Petty was like, did you hear my last record? And he was like, yeah, I did. That, and I'm telling you, all <laughs> live yeah, strings, we're going to strip it down. We're going to find what you do best and we're going to minimize it. And if you, all of his best records are like that, he strips it down to the bare minimum and then lets them fill it in from there. And it's so spectacular. And also just like he's, he's maybe four years older, five years older than us, but yep. yeah. the career. Like just absolutely right. jaw-droppingly insane that he stayed relevant this entire time. And it's 100% because he brings out the best in the people that he produces. He doesn't impose his own sound. He doesn't write all of the music. He lets them work. It's great. Awesome. So that's Rick Perfect Rubin. Choice. Perfect choice. Uh, I agree Jeff, with everything Ben said. Just, just to clarify for our audience, what is a producer? What does a producer do? Okay, well, it depends on... Um, the skill set. Um, there are two people who are not the musicians that make a record sound the way they are. One is the engineer. The engineer is mic placement, effects on the microphones, how the sounds that the musicians make make their way into or onto tape and now into a computer. Then there's okay. the producer who's usually a person who helps the musicians organize, arrange, rethink, finds the right key, says the ending is really the beginning, says the bridge is actually a verse, says the, what you think is the chorus actually belongs in another song, helps the Maybe artist like the organize. The director of a film, kind of. Yeah, I, I, don't, I actually don't, I can't speak to film. Like, okay. I, it's, not a, it's not like, a, it's not something I would know well enough to know. But a lot of producers in the old days um, were not engineers at all. Like they, they would, you know, they're in the back, like you should make it sound bluer. And then the en poor engineer would have to move it around, move the mics around and try to, <laughs> and the producer was a hands off the console idea guy. Right. And then, then there was, okay. a, there was a little technician. Now a producer and an engineer, the, the line is definitely blurred, right? A great engineer is now very often the producer because they're like, I think this should sound like this. 
and here's how you do it. Compressor, compressor effect, turn the mic around, plug through the speaker, blam, and the sound is the production. So uh -huh. that, that distance between engineer and producer has blurred a little bit, and Ruben okay. is the beginning of that because he makes that Beastie Boys record when he's living in the NYU dorms. Oh, dude, we'll get to that. You know? He founds Def Jam Records, and the oh. address is his dorm address. Right, <laughs> so he's, he's, he is a one-man show, and he had a lot of help making the later records sound as good as they did. Like the engineering on Wildflowers is the best of, of Petty's whole career. But, but Ruben, it was Ruben that kept Petty from sounding worse and worse and worse. Cause I actually think that once Jimmy Iovine is no longer producing Petty, the records start to sound worse and worse. I agree with Ben into the great white open is a, is so dated. It's, it's such a bummer. And then Wildflowers, is a perfect sounding record. I mean, right. as timeless as any record of the last 50 years. So, so that's really what a producer does. And okay. depending on the artist, like some artists are wide open to the collaboration of a producer. And some people want a person who can capture the sound. And a lot of artists, unfortunately, because you can do it all yourself now, don't get any help and don't get any editing and wreck their own music because they don't bounce their ideas off somebody honest enough to help them get better. Okay. All right, give me one of yours. Um, well, I won't say George Martin. I think you have to say George Martin, the guy who produced the Beatles because he invents the idea of production. Like until George Martin, you put a small combo in a room and you put microphones in front of them and they sang and that was it. And George Martin's okay. the first guy's like, hey, maybe we could run the tape backwards or maybe you could overdub or maybe we could put the drums in the left speaker and some other things in the right. And like stereo sound is invented while the Beatles are recording. And Martin's the first wow. guy's like, hey, maybe we could mix for two speakers instead of mono. Like, so all of those, the studio as a instrument is invented at Abbey Road by George Martin. So he's, he's crazy important in that regard. But in terms okay. of like- Oh wait, you got it. That's your choice. That's your choice. You're, that's you're, your choice. You're yeah, I'll, I'll stick with George Martin. I want, ben to, I want Ben to play lead on all of these. Go buddy. All right. You're next. All right, go ahead. All right, next up uh, is, in my opinion, number one with a bullet, easily the best hip hop producer. And this includes Ruben, who had a bunch of uh, great stuff. It's Dr. Dre. Yeah. Um, I'm an East Coast guy all the way, but if you're going to do West Coast, I mean, Dre just creates the entire sound from scratch. Yep. He uh, did all of the NWA records. He created, found Snoop Dogg, created that sound. Uh, he did California Love with Tupac. He does 50 Cents into Club. He, uh, and then, um, all of the Eminem records are him. Like, if you just go through it, it's crazy, yeah. this stuff. And right. then even his, re like, he's one of the guys who, who found Anderson Pack, who will be featured later in it. I love that guy. He's one of the guys oh, okay. who found The Game, who's one of my favorite West Coast rappers. Like, he's still got it going on, and he's the best. Awesome. Now, he wasn't producing way back when with NWA. Oh, no, he was. Oh, yeah. He was, like, 17. Yep. All of them are, are 17, but like he's the vision behind that. I mean, you know, the, the, wow. all of those guys contributed. I'm not trying to discount right, the right. other members, but no, but he had he's a hand. The sound. He was the DJ. He had the record collection and all of that. Like and Jeff will know the name of the actual synthesizer that creates that sound. That's all him. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. I actually don't know that that. Which yeah, is so, well, you also, you know, the, the ripped off, stole it from the Ohio players. What's the name oh. of the weird bass one that he does? Oh, I know. I don't know what that's called, but that's, oh, it's a Prophet 5, I think. I knew you like did, because yeah. I played it at your house. I knew you had one. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's incredible uh, what that All guy right. was able to do. Um, Go ahead. So I'll do a rock producer that I think, I'm trying to pick a producer that like invented a sound that people imitated for a really long time. Um, so I'm going to go with Jimmy Iovine, who's another oh, guy who produced uh, Tom Petty, because the drum sound that Iovine comes up with for Springsteen's record and for Tom Petty's records in the 70s is the drum sound that every single artist goes after. I'm just going to play the first um, uh, 10 seconds of something here real quick, because you, it, once you hear it, you'll be like, oh, yeah, that's what rock drums sound like but they didn't sound like that until Ivan figured out how to do it. Oh.
that really heavily, it's called a gate. It's a, a it takes, takes an acoustic instrument and gives it a really square uh, wavelength and frequency and then just kick snare. But like every huh. single, every single record from Born to Run through really that when synthesized drums took over is trying to sound like that. And I think Iovine's another great example of a guy who just talks. He's, Iovine's just a talker. He's like a Brooklyn hustler. And he got these artists in conversation and just talked and talked and talked and made them, made them communicate to him what it is they really gave a, a rat's ass about and made that what their records were about. And, uh, and then founded Interscope cool. Records and was an incredibly, and, and also much like Dr. Dre saw where music was headed and positioned himself there. One of my favorite hilarious moments of recent TV time was watching the Major League Baseball All-Star game when it was at Fenway Park and it's uh -huh. the home run derby so they're like they're just trying to fill space and they've got Dr. Dre, Jimmy Iovine and LeBron James in the booth because they've they're about to come out with Beats, the headphones, Beats by uh -huh. Dre. And Iovine's the money and and Dre's the 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 sound and LeBron is the cool nuke and LeBron's like I'm just hanging here with my my good friends Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine. <laughs> One of my favorite <laughs> Like they must, I mean, I'm sure they talk to each other for more than five seconds, but so Iovine's, Iovine's a guy I think just uh, is at the center of a whole bunch of really important moments in music for like 30 years. He does some U2 records too, right? He's involved. Yeah. Well, he's, yeah. I mean, Eno and Langwa do the production, but Iovine is the, he's behind that. He's also all the Patti Smith records. Um, I mean, his, his resume is enormous. Yeah. yeah. And he's also brilliant at putting people together. Like he's, He's a guy who's like talking to somebody. He's like, I know the two people you need to talk to for your thing to come together. Like he's just a center spoke on the wheel, sinisure, community creator kind of guy. Awesome. All right, Ben, who's All left? Right. Uh, so this generation, my daughter's generation, Rick Rubin is Jack Antonoff. So Jack Antonoff wrote uh, Sarah Borelli's Brave. And then he has been a producer on a whole bunch of female singer-songwriters. So Taylor Swift, 1989, Lover, and Folklore. He's the primary producer on those. He's the Lana Del Rey one, that the right. Lana Del Rey record that I'm over the moon about. St. Vincent, yep, yep. Mass Education, oh. he produced that. Lord Melodrama, he produced oh, that. Come uh, on Dixie now. Chicks Gaslighter this summer, he produced that. Um, and in particular, the Lord record, uh, like, yeah. I actually prefer, I, I love that record, but I actually right. kind of prefer the Lana Del Rey record, but that Lord record is probably the most, like, powerful, influential record that's awesome. come out in five years. It's, it's my younger daughter's favorite record. She just can't ever listen to that enough. And I again, love it. He's, the reason why I, I compare him to Ruben is that those records sound different. Like, folklore yep. sounds different from Lana Del Rey, sounds different from Mass Education, sounds different from Melodrama, sounds right. different from Gaslighter. Right. Um, and the reason they sound different is because he's not Dr. Luke. He's not imposing a sound on these people. They don't come to him because they want to sound like something. They come right. because they want to sound like the best version of themselves. Right. And he delivers that. Like, each one of those records, in my opinion, are best of, like, high points for those careers. That's awesome. Awesome. Jack, what's his name? Antonoff. Antonoff. Love it. All right, Jeff Simons, final producer. Uh, what I'm going to do here is just point out that um, in, the, in the really unfortunate sexist world of rock and roll, you don't uh -oh. see that sexism play itself out more atrociously in the list of, like, everybody named five female producers. Right. Exactly. I've worked with a lot of female engineers. Like, there's been a real uptick um, – that has been the place where the studio has become ungendered. Like there's a lot of really excellent female engineers. I've worked with, I mean, I actually have worked almost exclusively with female engineers professionally in the last 10 years, but the production chair is, is 99.9% .9 male. So I'm going to give a shout out to huh. a local uh, friend of a friend who works in, works out of the Barry named Linda Perry. And Linda All Perry right. broke through as a songwriter in the band Four Non Blondes. Nice. Uh, sure. Yeah. And then has gone on to write enormous hits. Beautiful for Christina Aguilera. Uh, oh. Songs for uh, No Doubt and Pink. 
uh, Adele, Alicia Keys, Courtney Love, but she has gotten into production and she has very similar to the other people that um, uh, Ben has mentioned, makes artists better and helps them find the piece of themselves that made them unique and interesting. So she's moved almost exclusively into production now. And uh, the list of people she's worked with is really interesting and very is varied. And I hope that her little toehold in the water of producers of note uh, breaks down. What I think is interestingly like the last space in the field of rock and roll where women have really struggled to be given the, the space to create. Like artistically, yes, as songwriters, yes, as empresarios, as businesswomen, like there are now models for young women, but like the production chair remains a dude. So Linda Perry is my third. Just oh, Linda Perry. Excellent. I like it. Well done. Totally agree. Yeah, well done. I loved uh, that Four Non Blondes uh, song, that big hit there. I didn't know she went on to write for those those other artists. That's awesome. Yeah, she's uh, she's one of those people whose career took off once she disappeared. You right. I mean? Yeah. Awesome. All right. Let's get to our three songs. Our three songs. All right, so I've got some light cheating this week. Uh, Run <laughs> DMC treason. <laughs> had an amazing three-year run, 1984, 1985, 1986. Uh, the first record, Eponymous, Run DMC, comes out in 1984. Okay. And it's a crazy leap forward for rap. So remember, in 1983, I did White Lines, and the yep. poor Sugar Hill Records is physically bankrupt by 1985, ruined by cocaine wow. and excess and lawsuits. White so lines. in 1984, Profile Records puts out the first Run DMC record. And I noticed I said record, not single. Uh, okay. Sugar Hill never successfully put out an entire album. Run DMC is weirdly, depending on how you want to count it, it's, the, it's definitely the first album that's a hit. And it's okay. got a whole format to it. It's got like... Sucker MCs, which is like the rap, rap song just with the um, drum track. And it's got Rockbox, which is the very first effort to try and combine rock music and rap music together. And uh, that song is great. And if you wanted to choose that as your Run DMC song, I would not be hurt at all. Uh, the next year, they put out King of Rock, which has the same song as I'm Rockbox. the King of Rock. It's the identical to Rockbox. It's a five minute and 30 second song where Eddie Martinez plays guitar and they rap over it. Yeah. And then, great. Uh, <laughs> so those two records are both gigantic for the time for hip hop. Uh, the Run DMC, the first record goes gold. King of Rock eventually goes platinum. They are, and they play two songs at Live Aid. They're the only rap act. I mean, they're the only rap wow. act in the world, really. They're the only rap act at Live Aid. But uh, it's like a classic climbing the hill story. They're like, we can be bigger. We can be bigger. And the next record, Raising Hell, is their effort to be bigger. Uh, they do a couple of different things. The first thing they do is they get Ruben. Ruben comes in uh, yes. and produces them. He's done a bunch of Beastie Boys tracks. He's done LL Cool J's radio. Uh, but he signs on. And so it's him and Russell Simmons producing it. They've wow. been touring all over Europe. They, they, they record the entire record in three months. They got the whole thing in the can. And I can kind of choose it for 85 because they recorded 85, 86. Okay. Um, the biggest hit off of that record, the one that everybody knows, is Walk This Way with Aerosmith and Run DMC. I'm not going right. to choose that. I actually think that's kind of borderline embarrassing. Um, <laughs> Saved Aerosmith's career, though. I mean, pulled Aerosmith yeah. from absolute... Really bargain bin like Aerosmith yep. records were 50 cents each in the bargain bin they were out of print they were out of work and that record pulled them all the way back it's no it's super funny when you go back and read the internet research on it the the people who were writing from Aerosmith's point of view were like well we gave those crazy kids and run dmc a chance <laughs> and then but literally i mean rick rubin is still living in a dorm and he was like oh yeah it wasn't a problem to get them it, it wasn't hard. <laughs> like, they had a lot of time I was like, hey, they, they, uh, the original version of it was just a sample. And Rick Rubin was like, you know what we should do is we should get Aerosmith to come. 
And uh, Simmons was like, no, that's, that's crazy. They're not going to come. Yeah. He's like, oh, they'll come. They'll yeah. come. <laughs> and he totally got them. Yeah. Anyhow, uh, that record's got a – like, um, that record's the shiniest record. It's, part, it's the most professional record. It sounds the best. And I'm not trying to credit it all to Rick Rubin. I promise I'm not trying. Like, Jam Master Jay says that he wrote all of it. He was the guy. Rubin just sat back. And I, I believe that because yeah. I actually believe that Rubin puts bands in a position to succeed. So both of those things can be true, that Rubin made it sound better and that the band itself was yeah. driving the bus. Um, they did a third version of Rockbox. They've got Rockbox and King of Rock, and then they've got the third one. It's the same stupid song, Raising Hell. Hey, Jeff Simons, this time there's a new guitarist, not session musician Eddie Martinez. Who is it? I have no idea. Not it's a clue. Rick Rubin. It's Rick oh, Rubin. Awesome. And dude, you won't believe how sloppy it is. When you listen to it, you'll be like, wow, that guy's not really very good. And it's because it's Rubin. And uh, Rubin's line at this time is that was appropriate. Rap music is punk music for African Americans. And it's just completely right. He says, captured that yeah. mood perfectly. How about so, that? So, Jeff, if you will start at minute three of Raising Hell, and then I'll point out some stuff about it. How long is the song? Wait, hold on. It's five and a half minutes, and you have to go through the to the left, y'all. To the left, (laughs) y'all. Raising Hell by Run DMC. In the darkest night, if you are cold, I'll bring you heat. Like I brought the whole world my funky beat. Mysterious and serious, I ain't no joke. Fire from the depths of hell, and you can smell the smoke. Kicking and chicken while you're having a ball. Like chicken finger licking, I'll be thinking you all. Don't do the bird, have you heard? Did they give you a call? Just me and DMC, cold shaking the wall. There's no fear when hearing sound of this kind. Across the land, every man is going out of his mind. On the face of the earth, spreading like disease, contaminating, infiltrated like a horde of bees. Lord of lyrics, truth of discussion, ruler of rock, your king and co-crushing. listen to Rockbox, the guy right. who does it is a studio musician and he's great like he shreds but they, they sloppied it down for this version that's why i love it so here's a couple of things wow. i run dmc the first <laughs> is they stripped it down and this is not ruben it's like all the way back at the very first record they were the first band to get rid of the disco get rid of the shiny like if you go back and listen to white lines there's a lot going on there and it's a disco record, basically. Right. Run right. DMC was like, you know what's, what's going to happen here? Is there's going to be just a drum machine, cutting and scratching, and us rapping. That's it. And yep. at the first part, at three minutes when you come in, if you go back and listen to it, there's just a drum beat and them. And they sound freaking great. Then they're the second act. They're the first act to do this thing where they add in the rock music. Like they bring mm. in the guitars. They bring in the solo. They do all of that. And they're a bridge. They're like second wave rap music. Yep. Go all the way back to the old block party with the to the left, y'all, to the left, y'all. Like, that just kills me. Like, that's just 1977 (laughs) in the Bronx with the big speakers out. Like, they do it all. um, And they're not, like, you can actually see we're on the cusp. And it's a little bit sad. Like, two years later, they put out Tougher Than Leather. And that barely sells. And they're gone. Right. Um, And the reason why is... It's a real old fashioned sound of rap. Like they rap on the beat, they enunciate super clearly, everything rhymes, and it's all right. like this bragging type stuff. Uh, by the time you get to Public Enemy, and then you, when you get out, out to the West Coast, when you get to MWA, right. it's over. They're just yeah. completely gone. Like that's right. super, super old fashioned. And yeah, old they school. sound like the way Homer Simpson raps in the 90s. Like, yeah, I mean, but that, like again, they, if you compare them to their contemporaries, like the Curtis No, Blow, they, were, like, they were spitting yeah. fire for the time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, also, I was, they're the first act to come in and out. Like, they're not trading yeah. entire verses. They do one line, another line. They're yelling together on it. It's awesome. Yep. 
I mean, you know, I was my high school band was like seventy five percent covers and twenty five percent originals, and we covered both Thirty Days and Rockbox. Oh, nice! And we, and we wow, we loved it. Like it wasn't, you know, I, I look back at that and I'm like, you know, you got four. It was a four piece band with you know four white kids who were obsessed with punk rock. We heard the first Run DMC record, and we're like, yes. I mean that. Let's do that. We yeah. we you know Demario brought that to rehearsal and was like, listen to this, and we learned two songs like that morning. <laughs> like this song, this is a this speaks to me just like Minor Threat and just like all the Hundred Miles an Hour stuff that we were listening to. I love that first Run DMC record. Yeah, it's great. They yeah, also they, they created the the like the hip hop look. So yeah, all those old my acts, Adidas. Yeah. all yep. of the old acts were like wearing leather and were like total like in high heels and stuff. And they just had like a track suit, the Adidas sneakers with no, no laces and the Kangol hat. And they were just badasses. That's it. Yep. 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 Great. Song. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder how we, um, how we think of them. Like, are, are they still thought of as kind of old fashioned and, um, I don't know, not not as uh, monumental as they were in 84, 85, and 86. That's interesting. I think, I think the, I think the Walk This Way song hurt their legacy a little bit because it's so silly. Like, I think people think of them as like a one-hit wonder and they miss out. But, yeah. Uh, but, you know, well, it's funny. I think that they've had a huge comeback. I really I do. I do, too. I do, too. Um, also, uh, I mean, one thing like, that's really sad is like Jam Master Jay got shot, so that's super yeah. beat. They arrested the guys yesterday, yesterday for that murder. Yeah. Did you see that? Yeah. 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 It's great. All right. Uh, and yet, and yet Biggie and oh. Tupac's murderers still walk among us. So, what are you going to do? All right. Jeff Simons. It's a heck of a pick by Ben Barton for 1985. How do you it's counter it? Uh, this was the easiest year yet for me. Like, there's a song oh. that I love from 1985 more than any other, and it's not even close. Um, it's one of those songs where, like, if a song could be the life you in, you wanted for yourself when you were 15 years old, it, it's this song. Um, so, Sammy Hagar, I yeah, can't drive I can't 55. Now you spoiled it. No, so this. <laughs> There are there have been moments in my life where this was my favorite band. Like Ben can tell you, I showed up to college with a hand-painted banner that was eight feet by two feet that I hung across the ceiling of my room that was an imitation of this uh, band's logo I'm sorry. most eight, recent record. How, how, how long? The measurements? Eight, feet, eight, eight by two. It was like a huge banner. I was like, I'm going to need something to hang in my dorm room. So I okay. ripped a sheet, and then with black paint, I painted the logo of this band and hung it. Uh, and uh, my two squeezed Dirty Dancing soundtrack loving roommates didn't know what to make of me. But And uh, also, Jeff uh, was huge with the ladies. You can imagine they loved it. They were like, tell me more about that banner. All you got to do is be huge with one lady at a time. All you it, was, it was a great way to, to find the right people, though. Like, you know, that thing... <laughs> When somebody came in every room was like, yes, like I had, you know, I was like, you have the other half of this amulet. Anyway, the, the band is The Replacements. And in 1985, they put out their first major label record. They made the jump from Twin Tone Records, which was the hometown label in Minneapolis, to Sire Records, which is where Talking Heads and all these, and for the Pretenders and all these big new wave acts. And they hired Tommy Ramone from the Ramones to produce them. They put out a record called Tim. And... On that record is my all-time favorite replacement song, which is saying something, because Paul Westenberg, yeah. the lead singer and right. songwriter, has written a lot of songs that mean a lot to me. But this one, it sums up him. It sums up his kind of romantic, like, puncher's chance, going down swinging view of life. And when I was 15 and five feet tall, entering the 11th grade and 91 pounds soaking wet, trying to figure out who I was and trying to figure out if I had anything to say. This idea of a guy traveling around in a band, listening to the other artists he loved way on the left side of the FM dial where all the weird music was, <laughs> hit me like a ton of bricks. So this is called <laughs> Left of the Dial and it is my song for 85 and potentially my song of the decade. Probably not, but it's up there. So here we go. Left of the Dial by The Replacements. Okay. 
line at like, you know, read about your band in a local page. It didn't mention your name. is not a <laughs> of my own professional music career. Like <laughs> right, right. steps away from fame a bunch of times, but you know, nobody knows who the hell I am. And uh -huh. that line about the sweet Georgia breezes stayed cool and warm. So we headed North, like getting it wrong and, heading in the wrong direction and making the wrong and then right. that that declaration of like on and on and on and on what side are you on like this song in 1985 to be a replacements fan was was to make well you were saying something like i'm not listening to the radio i'm finding my own stuff and i'm you know there were people who thought this music sucked when i loved it and were very comfortable telling me about telling me that and so like that which side are you on? Like there was a moment in the mid eighties when I felt like the art, the, the, the choices I was making about the art I liked, the friends I protect, I pledged allegiance to the, even the, you know, the political choices I was making, like they were lines in the sand and they were determining a path, even if I couldn't see it or really understand it in the moment. And I feel that even more now listening to it than I did then. So that's my song. Oh, love it. That, love has it. that always been your favorite replacement song? Is that no, true? No, I don't know if it has been. It's really grown on me, especially in the last 10 years. Like, it's just so well written. Because before waits. you said the part about the radio, I was like, oh, it's going to be Alice Chilton. But I thought that came out later. Like, yeah, I thought, Chilton is that's not like, your favorite one? I mean, it's in the conversation. But right now, this one's my favorite. That's I, amazing. I, I just love Left of the Dial. It's just so good. How many, uh, how many albums the replacements put out? Uh, one, two, three, four, five, seven, I think. And then did, did Paul Westerberg have a solo career at all? Yeah, he, the last replacement record is essentially a solo record. Then he put out one, two, three solo records. It has fizzled. Like, it just didn't happen for him. Um, right. The solo records weird. are good, too, though. The material yeah. is good. His songs are good. His songs are good. But um, Hey, Jeff, this, did you see them live? And how many times? Oh, at least, at, at least ten yeah maybe I, 10. did i tell you the story the one time i saw them live uh is it opening uh, for petty it was it was opening for petty on yeah, their they, breakup tour oh it's so and, bad uh yeah. they were drunk as hell <laughs> two of them sat down they played for 30 <laughs> minutes and i actually liked them so i was like <laughs> you know i went to go see i was brandon bernarine again i went to go see petty and i was like oh the replacements are gonna open we gotta get there early and they showed up late and sucked like they were just a huge <laughs> FU to the crowd yep yeah, I saw them on that tour as well, and they played two songs like the like a house on fire, and then the lights went dark for seven minutes, and they just power drank on stage, and oh, then God. played like sloppy covers for twenty five minutes until the roadies cut the power. I mean, it was <laughs> it was so bad. It was so bad. Oh, uh, all right, great, great song. Hey, you guys, again, you came strong this week. Um, I had a lot of trouble choosing my song for 1985. I, I talked to my wife. I said, uh, it's 1985. And she's like, well, that sophomore year. Uh, she's like, you too. She's like, the unforgettable fire. I was like, whoa, whoa. This is the woman who had two CDs when I married her. And she's calling you too. I'm I know. impressed. Way to Isn't go, impressive? Way to go, robot lady. <laughs> but in my head... I already had the Water Boys sitting there with Hole of the Moon, which I know would drive you guys crazy. Oh, so I, I like that was, song. That's I was fine. kind of attracted to it. And then you have the Pogues, Rum, Sodomy, and the Lash, Dirty Old Town about Dublin. But all three of my choices for 1985 were Irish bands. Shocker. And kind of, I mean, truly a shocking development, Tim. I'm kind of tired of Ireland because I look at our listens and we don't have more than five listens from the Republic of Ireland. Despite my pleadings on Twitter, despite my, my begging on Twitter, Ireland isn't listening to our podcast. So you know what? I'll say it. Screw Ireland. Oh, my God. I'm going to England. And just like in 1975, I made a statement on this podcast. I'm making another statement in 1985. You can make fun of Dolly Parton. You can make fun of new soul music of the early 80s. I'm coming strong 
with a little she sells sanctuary by the cult. I did not see that coming. Come oh on. She sells sanctuary by the cult. My son just yelled, you're wrong. <laughs> I'm getting heckled in my own house. I know nothing about them. What do you got? <laughs> I got nothing. I liked all the songs you would have chosen. I like Dirty Old Town. I like Old <laughs> I like that U2 record. I like that song. Um, you did very well this week. That, Ian Asbury is the lead singer of The Cult. I think that's all I can. I know that they used uh, overweight Ian Asbury to fill in for, for dead Jim Morrison when the Doors made it into the that's rock room. That's right. Rock that was terrible. Yeah. was the, uh, the sub. And Over it was really appropriate because he was heavy and he was singing all pitchy. Like Jim it was like an, it was like a Doors concert. It was re- but probably <laughs> oh, not dude, what listen, you were hoping. I saw the Cult open for Metallica. That's what I thought. And that yeah. dude was like four hundred pounds. Like like <laughs> Wait, the lead obese. singer. Oh no. yeah, dude. And then it was. I mean, it was great. <laughs> it was so funny. They were terrible, but it was so funny that it was worth the money. Like I said that the replacement sat down. He physically laid on the stage like a beached whale and like just kind of mauled Asbury? Oh, yeah. And like, like I was waiting for the bassist to come over and kick him. Like, get up, fat boy. Get up. <laughs> it was amazing. That song so is I, great. I, I, the first thing I said was, though, that um, the best cult record, Electric, that's the one that uh, Ruben did. And so yeah, I yeah, yeah. Prefer, right. uh, the, the electric rips off ACDC, uh-huh. and the Sanctuary record rips off U2. And basically, I prefer the U2. And over then there's ACDC. that crappy one from '89, Sonic Temple, that rips off uh, Glam Rock really unsuccessfully. That was yeah. really bad too. But that song is great. That song is fine. That's not my favorite. Like, like uh, Love Removal Machine is my that's favorite. The but one. That's the one. That's Love great Removal is a killer cult song that's so great my uh, brother pat introduced the cult to me and he brought me to their concert either in 1985 or 86 i'm not sure in mansfield massachusetts the oh, cult. was the guy skinny then he was skinny yeah so i'm shocked uh, by 89 he was eating himself yeah. out of the business oh Success poor guy right to, oh, man. Right to his, uh, guess who uh, guess who the cult opened for in 85 Mm. Billy, Billy Idol. Choir. Oh, Billy Idol. Yeah, that makes that's sense. a good one. Yeah, we kind of left at that point. My brother. You was left in for Billy Idol. You did. You left, left. for Billy Idol. Uh, By the way, we, we, no, no yeah. audience had more beautiful women in it in 1985 than Billy Idol. Every beautiful woman in my high school went to see Billy Idol on the Rebel Yell tour, and they all came the next day wearing ripped up Billy Idol t-shirts and like the bracelets. <laughs> that was equal. To Madonna at the VMAs for yeah yes. yeah that Google Rebel Yell record is not Idol. bad that's, that's no man Steve Stevens him. the guitarist he could play yeah eighty five yeah. is a great year man eighty five has the eighties are underrated they got made fun of a lot but I think it's going to be harder for me to find stuff I love in the nineties than it has Elvis been. Costello made fun of he said that, he said the eighties were worth just shutting the book on nothing well, good came out of the eighties it was like he did go Elvis. through a terrible divorce and then. Uh, uh, lost his guy. band and lost his record label. Like, there's some bad Elvis stuff for him. He made great records in the 80s, though. He I made right. great better in the 90s. The 90s are easier. Eh. Huh. You know, All like, right, this, actually, this, oh, I'll, I'll preview this. Like, the sound of the 80s that Ben hates, there's a guitar sound coming in the 90s that I hate, and I will 
look forward to ripping it up as we get to that decade. So. Can you give Pretty me cool. a preview? Nah. All right. That's just all just guessing. Listen, yeah. Bye, guys. We'll see you later. Later, Timmy. Well done, man. Thanks. That's great. See you next right. week. Later. Bye. Thanks for listening to 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. If you like what you hear, leave us a good review on iTunes. We'd really appreciate it. And come visit us on our Facebook page where you can weigh in on who actually had the best song ever. Electric Acid. Welcome to Tuning In to Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonize your mind, body, and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together we explore vibrations, frequencies and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie and I want to empower you through encouragement. Inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. Electricast.